Welcome to The Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Hello, Compounding World. This is Mike Delisio, host of Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. And as I've mentioned in prior episodes, it's very obvious to us that 2019 has been a year of change, um, predominantly within the world of regulatory compliance. As most of you know at this point, um, the USP chapters of 795, 797, and USP 800 have recently been revised and published and will be taking into effect on December 1st. Uh, to discuss this topic in a much broader detail, specifically as it pertains to non-sterile preparations and USP 795, I'm joined by three highly in- intelligent individuals, much more intelligent than I am, um, and that's obviously my co-host, Sebastian Dennison. So, hey, Seb. Good to be back. I'm looking forward to this topic today. And uh, two of your amazing colleagues, both Matt Martin, joining us all the way from Kentucky, and AJ Day, Vice President of Clinical Services. So, welcome back, AJ. Thank you so much. Awesome. So, um, I'm going to I'm going to have a hard time with this because we're going to try to steer questions to both of you, um, as well as you, Seb, and I feel like I'm going to be more of a bystander and observer. Um, but I guess the first question goes out to you, Matt. There, I mentioned this climate of change and the fact that um, the USP chapters have undergone revision in the past. Um, as it's always been alluded to, it, they're living, breathing documents, and 2019 is an, an opportunity for... USP to analyze all three different areas of compounding. Um, As it pertains to 795, I I know last episode we met with Dylan and uh, she did a phenomenal job digging into the world of sterile compounding. So just overall, kind of walk me through the the process um, for USP 795 and some of your interpretations thus far. Yeah, so I think the thing that's really important for people, certainly if they don't have a copy of the chapter, uh, is to head over to the USP website uh, and download that. Uh, it's free to download, so there's really nothing stopping you from going out and getting that and start reading it if you haven't already. Uh, I would encourage you to read it uh, a second time and then the third time and uh, you know probably several more times after that. It seems like every time you read the chapter, there's a, a new detail um, that pops out. Um, the other thing I would say is that when you do read the chapter, Uh, to pay attention to the words uh, must uh, and shall uh, versus the word should. The the musts and the shalls are requirements uh, in the chapter, and should is a recommendation. Now, I'm not saying don't do those things, but I'm just saying you might want to go through and highlight, you know, those words perhaps in some different colors or something just to make sure you understand what is specifically required and what's considered uh, a recommendation. Sometimes that clears things up for people that maybe they get uh, concerned or frustrated about different parts of the chapter, but to go back and make sure about the must and the shalls uh, versus versus should uh, when they're reading it. So Matt, we've seen this harmonization of the chapters. They've all been released uh, recently. Um, so with the effort of putting them together with a complete rewrite of the chapter, what are you seeing as some of the major changes right off of the top? What, are your, what was your first impression when you, when you read through this? What were the standout changes that everyone should be twigging to immediately? 
So I think the big thing to keep in mind before we talk about the changes, uh, because I don't want anybody to uh, overstep and, and start applying some of this stuff incorrectly, is that these chapters don't become official within USP until December 1st, 2019. So you, you can't, it's like some of the big things that people are going to look at is the beyond use dates for their non-sterile compounds. Um, but that doesn't change in USP until December 1st. So I don't want anybody to go out and apply these new BUDs um, today, especially for some of the things that might have a longer one, um, unless they have explicit written approval from their board of pharmacy. Um, but so these things become official December the 1st. So definitely keep that in mind. Um, we do have some shifts in the beyond use dating, uh, how you extend beyond use dates. We've got uh, a new term to talk about when we talk about preparations, talking about water activity. Uh, we've got this whole new person or group of people uh, called the designated person uh, in 795 and 797. Um, and I think those are some of the, the big things that people are going to jump off to right from the get-go. I'll also add in real quick, Matt and Sebastian, that while the effective date for these chapters, 797, 795 and 800 is December 1 per USP. USP is not a regulatory authority. It is up to the state board of pharmacy or multiple state boards of pharmacy if you're licensed in multiple states to determine if and when they will adopt and enforce the standards contained within these chapters of USP. So ultimately, the compliance that, that you are held accountable to is based off of the state board recommendations, not just the default of, of USP. Now, if the requirements from the state board or boards that you are registered with are less stringent than what's in USP, then you're certainly going to be covering your bases, so to speak, if you are compliant with all of USP chapters. Um, so you can do more than what's required by your state board, but you can't do less. Which makes total sense when you're looking at it from a state board perspective is that the, the standards of practice are almost like the minimums that we're requiring. And you can always go beyond and, and, and uh, improve. But also we want to look at the most current best practices in the industry. So USP is, is certainly taking the lead in that. And we're seeing that consistency all throughout the world, which, is, which we're also seeing up in Canada. We're probably seeing it roll out within other compounding communities such as Australia, New Zealand, even throughout Europe. So this, this, is, this is groundbreaking stuff. It's exciting. So Matt, AJ, um, I'm going to kind of bounce between the two of you. Which are the standout features? You've already talked about some terms, designated, uh, designated persons. I'm interested in hearing about that beyond use dates. Give us your impression. Standout pieces, where do you want to start? Matt, you talked about designated person. What, what does that mean? I tell you what, I, I, I'm going to digress for just a second because I think you hit on a really key point. When you talk about 795 being the minimum standard uh, of practice, and that's a, that's something that's quoted right out of the chapter, um, which is great. And so I, I think when we're talking about regulatory compliance, I, I guess I feel the need to make sure and mention that there are other things that people need to be aware of beyond just USP. And that certainly pertains to uh, FDA's guidance documents. Uh, specifically, I wanted to highlight the insanitary conditions guidance document from FDA that certainly has some bearing on um, non-sterile compounding. Uh, so if anybody thinks like, well, gosh, I'm, I'm quote, quote, only doing non-sterile compounding, you know, FDA pretty much inspects sterile compounders. I'll tell you that that is not true. 
uh, FDA definitely does inspect non-sterile compounders, and I think you need to be aware of that in sanitary conditions guidance document. And there are a number of themes in that guidance document that also show up in 795 when we talk about things like preventing cross-contamination uh, of your compound, so we don't end up with drugs that weren't supposed to be in a you know in a compound. Uh, also, then making sure that the compounds, although they're non-sterile, they're certainly uh, not contaminated so that there's not gross microbial uh, contamination in those non-sterile compounds uh, and also the way in which you clean uh, your lab and the upkeep uh, on your lab to make sure that everything uh, is in a, a good state of repair. So I would very much encourage people that if they have anything, they look around the lab and there's a shelf that's become rusted or a ceiling, the ceiling tile that got stained or damaged at some point just to please go ahead fix those issues replace those things get the lab um in a, in a clean and, and good working order um to your question about the designated person this new term uh in usp this is talking about either an individual uh, or a group of people so it doesn't necessarily this doesn't all fall on the shoulders of one person um, but this individual or this group of people is essentially responsible for everything that's going to happen with the non-sterile compound. Uh, everything from the, the training, uh, with very specifically uh, to the selection of the components, to the compounding process, to the quality control procedures. And I, I think, you know, it, now some people I understand are, are in uh, pharmacies where there's a, uh, only a handful of people working, and so you may not be able to divide up this responsibility of overseeing all of these things. Uh, but if you have that, if, if you are a pharmacy that has uh, a little bit more staff and you have appropriate people for this, I want to encourage people to think about um, dividing that some of those responsibilities to their team. Uh, I'm concerned that people are going to try to take on so much that uh, it's just going to be overwhelming. And so since the chapter allows this uh, to be spread out amongst a group within your organization, I think that's a really important consideration. Um, so that to make sure that everything gets done and nothing falls through the cracks because uh, one individual you know takes on too much responsibility. So when you're talking about a large practice, you're probably talking about three or four people and dividing the work and maybe even taking on specialized roles within that designated person category. You might have someone running a quality yes. assurance program and someone else doing chemical inventory purchasing expiration, like dividing out the work. Like this is it's going to be a full time role for at least one, if not part-time for a few. So a AJ, any comments with respect to designated persons or any sort of in impact there? My perspective is that the overall purpose of the language that's utilized as the USP uh, committees went through and, and created these updated chapters is there needs to be accountability. The purpose of the designated person is so that there's accountability and consistency and that there are certain people who are authorized and in, in charge of specific processes within the pharmacy operation. And that is important for overall operational flow and consistency and training. And that's the value of this. This is not 
intended to just be an extra hurdle for pharmacies to have to comply with. There is a fundamental reason that has to do with the quality of what we are producing and the way that we are producing the items that we produce as compounding pharmacists. So I, I always think back to what's the point of this? What's the purpose? And if we start with the purpose in mind, then it makes it much easier to comply with the language of, of the standard. So just out of curiosity, and this is not putting anybody on the spot, um, if it was ever written in such a way where certain compounding training was ever mandated, uh, one would think that maybe this is a, almost a type of workaround to have a designated individual in the pharmacy be internally trained according to processes and thus following certain levels of compliance and ensuring that they are following something specific or written in stone. Am, am I correct on that or is it hard to determine? Well, and I, I don't know that it has to be written in stone because the nature of, of process and business is that these things do need to be somewhat fluid because um, situations change. You know, there might be specific parameters within your operation that change, and so you need to have some degree of fluidity for that. So really the purpose has to do with accountability to make sure that things are happening that need to happen for quality's sake, for safety's sake, for consistency's sake. So if I don't know who the person is that's responsible for updating our SOPs and making sure that our new employees are being trained on all of the relevant SOPs and existing employees are revisiting and being retrained on new processes related to the SOPs and those SOPs are being updated for those new processes, you see how this is all kind of a, a, a snowball effect. And if there's no clear delineation of who's in charge of making sure those things happen, it's easy in the hustle and bustle of day-to-day -day pharmacy operations um, or, or any other kind of operations to lose sight and lose track of some of these very important operational tasks. So is this something that we're going to probably be see, seeing across the board for, from a standard operating procedure point of view where things need to be rewritten, re-implemented, and people do have the time to adjust? I think from a best practice perspective, this is not necessarily anything that's new. I think from an enforcement perspective, it's likely to be new. The standard operating procedures and, and the expectations for those to be continually revised and updated is, is a part of continuous quality improvement. CQI should be something that everybody has in, in their operations and that they review on a regular ongoing basis. So I don't see this as, as something that's new in terms of the standard, the best practice, and, and, and what we teach. I do see it as something that's new in terms of regulatory oversight and enforcement. So there, there, there's likely going to be a stronger degree of emphasis on it going forward. And a lot of this, um, this emphasis has been happening for a couple of years now. Matt previously talked about the uh, FDA guidance documents and FDA inspections. This is certainly part of FDA in investigators' um, focus when they're going into 503A compounding pharmacies as well as any other facility. Matt, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think along those lines, I mean, the SOPs are required in 795 to be updated uh, every 12 months. Uh, the training uh, has to occur initially as well as has to be refresher training uh, every 12 months. Uh, and then the, the designated person uh, has to be documented for the various responsibilities that exist 
within the pharmacy and, and in the SOPs. Um, so I, I think AJ is very much uh, on point in that uh, this is not anything new for best practices, but it is new in that USP is specifically requiring more uh, documentation uh, around who is responsible and making sure that that training is occurring. And not only that the, the training happens, but that there is uh, proof that the person can do the particular task they're trained on, um, where USP calls for um, them to you to observe them doing the particular thing that, that they're being trained on. So not only, uh, you know, it's not like they just read and understand the SOP and sign a document that says, yeah, I was trained, but that you actually train that person and then have them perform the task, see that they do it correctly uh, per the SOP and document that uh, afterwards. So Matt, what are your, what are you seeing as the biggest hurdle for people who are reading this document and thinking like, oh my God, SOPs, SOPs, I don't even know what, I don't even have, what is an SOP? Where do I start? Where would you start with understanding these SOPs and how would you kind of initiate it at your practice at this point? Okay, sure. So uh, I, would, I hope that everyone has an SOP manual uh, in place, uh, certainly, but if for some reason you find yourself in a situation where there's maybe not an SOP manual or a limited amount of SOPs. This is something that needs to get uh, corrected uh, as soon as, you know, as soon as humanly possible. Uh, PCCA does offer uh, an SOP manual that is a uh, fabulous starting place. Um, it is something that you have to customize to your particular practice, okay? So you can't just buy it and stick it on the shelf. Uh, or buy it and, uh, you know, write your name on it and kind of go on, okay? You are going to have to customize it to your practice, but quite honestly, uh, the amount of time it would take just to write all the documents, uh, in my mind, is well worth the, the cost of the manual, let alone the knowledge uh, to write all of these documents. Um, so I, I would encourage anybody, if you don't have that, that can be a great tool and a great resource for moving forward with more of your SOPs. All right, so I'm gonna move on to the next question because I, I wanted some standout changes because we, our listeners are sitting back thinking, okay, if we've got the experts in the room, what would I ask them? So what would be your next standout? So we've talked about um, the purpose, the scope, the understanding the background we've talked about designated persons we're going to start talking about next standouts what is your next standout that you're thinking is going to be a big change and we've got effectively five months before it's really hitting pharmacy enforcement so i think the next thing to talk about is the garbing um the, in the current 795 is a little bit more specific um, but in the new 795 it really gives you a, a little latitude to choose um, so I want to make sure that people don't see that latitude to choose to mean like, oh, we, we don't really have to wear as much uh, PPE in the lab, okay? That, I don't think that's the intent at all. The only thing it says that you absolutely 100% must wear when you do non-sterile compounding is gloves. After that, it says you choose, but then it has to do two things. It has to protect the person that's making the compound, and it also has to protect the compound from the people that are doing it. So yeah, maybe this is thought about more in the sterile world, but people in a, in a lab, whether it's a non-sterile lab or a sterile lab, 
are essentially sources of potential contamination because we all shed skin particles. And on those skin particles can be bacteria. And as I mentioned before, these are non-sterile compounds, but they're not contaminated compounds. And so covering the body and covering a lot of that skin then reduces the amount of that particles that could in the skin cells that could be coming off of a person and end up uh, in that compounded preparation. So uh, I would certainly encourage everybody to really think about that uh, in, in making good choices uh, about what they have for garbing. And it's not explicitly discussed in 795, but I, I think there's a discussion too about the possibility of having dedicated clothing that people wear uh, into the lab space um, to make sure that you know when people are coming from their home, they're not bringing their uh, pets uh, or their kids or other things uh, on their clothes or breakfast or what have you uh, on that clothing that they're walking into the lab as another source of uh, potential contamination. So again, that's, that's not a requirement in 795, but I, I do think it's a discussion that uh, should at least be considered by everybody in making their choices for both the clothing that people wear and then the additional garb that they use to cover themselves uh, to protect the, the, the drug and then also to protect themselves. Okay, so after our garbing, um, I noticed that there was something in there about a ventilated containment device. This one kind of jumped out, which was a huge departure. Care to, care to share? Yeah, absolutely. So in there, the line is that weighing, measuring, or otherwise manipulating components that could, notice the word could, could generate airborne particles, uh, must be assessed to determine if you have to do this in a closed system uh, processing device. Okay, in a closed system processing device, for most people, is probably going to be a powder containment hood, okay? But it also goes on to say that the, this, uh, this assessment of deciding whether or not you need powder containment has to be documented. So we have a new piece of paper that has to be generated by the new 795 where you have to document your decision about what type of containment that you're going to use. Uh, so they didn't go so far as to say you absolutely have to use a powder containment hood, but that you do have to address containment. For the vast majority of compounding pharmacies, that is going to be a, a containment ventilation enclosure uh, or a, a powder containment hood. I think it's very important that uh, the people pay a lot of attention to, again, the purpose of the powder containment hood, the CVE. Um, it is, in my opinion, one of the most critical pieces of equipment that you can have in a compounding lab to keep your, your powder particles contained in the case of a spill or even just in the ordinary course of weighing, mixing, crushing tablets, any of those types of powder particle generating activities. So while there might be an opportunity to conduct an assessment, Keep in mind that that assessment must address what is the risk of contamination. This is uh, for, we're, we're talking about 795, so non-hazardous, non-sterile. If you're dealing with anything hazardous, then you're looking at USP 800, completely different scenario. So even on the non-hazardous side, there is a need to keep all of these particles contained. And I think just as a best practice, I would, I would strongly urge people to really consider the incorporation of a powder containment hood as a best practice to protect their staff and also to protect the compound from the other stuff. You know, humans are a huge source of shedding particles 
you know, dust and hair and everything else that, that, that uh, kind of comes with it. So while there is an opportunity for an assessment, I think that that's, it, it must be taken very seriously. And I've, I've heard of various pharmacy entities that have said, oh, well, it's an assessment. We're, we're just going to find a way to not do it. And I, I don't believe that that's in the best interest of either product and therefore patient safety, nor employee safety. So take this very, very seriously. I think AJ makes an excellent point there, and I, I that I don't want people to take it um, because USP 800 has addressed hazardous drugs, and if they are not doing drugs that are considered hazardous by NIOSH, that all of a sudden they don't need to control these particles and where they go and who gets exposed to them. We're compounding with drugs, right? And those things have effects on the body. That's why we're making them for the patient that needs them, right? So we've got to be concerned still about uh, exposing uh, those of us that, that work in those compounding spaces uh, to those drugs. And certainly the powder containment hood uh, is, a, is a key piece, as AJ mentioned, to uh, prevent that exposure. Uh, and then also look at the process for uh, cleaning that, that hood uh, in between compounds to prevent cross-contamination. So in this next part, um, we, we're continuing to go through like different big changes. Um, I know we've talked about, and, and I'm saving the beyond use date discussion for a little bit longer because I think there's a little bit more information and people are going to get really excited about that. But as you said, we have to wait. We can't just incorporate that right now. What other standouts are, are you seeing that we need to start addressing, not necessarily be enforced, but start moving in the correct direction. So we've talked about designated persons, we've talked about the ventilated containment device, uh, contam cross-contamination. What's next? I think there's more focus on the, the chemicals that you use and being sure to examine them prior to using them, uh, not just the chemical itself, but examining the container that the chemical is in before you use it to make sure that the container has not been damaged, the container has not been left open, the label has not been removed or, or part of it uh, is missing so that you don't have all the relevant uh, information uh, about that chemical. And so the chapter gets very specific about needing that review. And so I think that's a thing to build into uh, your formulations and your compounding records that you document that you did review the, the quality of your chemical and the appearance of your chemical and the, the uh, quality of the container that it's in prior to use, uh, because the chapter is so specific about that. The other thing I would note, and this is, this is described in really in the current 795 as well, but uh, we're talking about your, your formulas and your compounding records and things that you're looking at, uh, is the appearance, the expected appearance of the compound. Um, this is something that more boards of pharmacy have picked up on as being in 795 in the last probably two years and have been more of a focus of inspections. Uh, so I don't think people have to, you know, overthink this. They just need a, a general description of what it's supposed to look like. And the, the point of that being that, you know, if it's supposed to be a white, smooth cream and you compound it and it turns out green, that there's a, a warning that sets off that says this isn't right. You know, that's kind of the intent of that appearance being a part of uh, your formulas and your compounding records. So I would I would look at that. And that's something that, you know, you can certainly begin to address that today and build that into your process and into your record keeping uh, before the chapter becomes official or before your state takes action on it. 
So Matt, with that, we've had an interesting conversation with a couple of our members and they're starting to document what their final product looks like using technology, like using a specific camera that doesn't leave the lab so we don't have cross-contamination and then uploading that into their master formulation sheet so we can actually capture that. And that's a good visual check. And again, the documentation that proves that you've observed what it looks like and you've compared it to what's what's supposed to be present. So man, it's gonna be so much more documentation going forward. And this is why that designated person is gonna be so important. So at this point, I think it's it's safe that we're ready to discuss beyond you states. Uh, AJ, Matt, this is going to be a bit of a bit of a body, so you guys can share the share the topic. Um, beyond you states, major changes, major major points in there that we want to discuss. Um, I get I'm probably going to get this wrong. Activity of water. Why is that so important nowadays, and uh, what does that mean? And then some specific questions around that. So. Let's launch into Beyond You States and the, and the changes that we've seen. So there are several changes to the default Beyond You States, how those are structured, and how they categorize your, your actual compound of formulations, as well as changes to what needs to be done if you wish to extend the Beyond You State of your compounded non-sterile preparation beyond what's included in the chart, and that the type of supportive data that would be required for that. So you talked about what I believe you meant to say is water activity. No, uh, activity of water. I want to know what those little molecules are doing. <laughs> so, so water activity is somewhat new terminology to the compounding world. However, scientifically speaking and looking at FDA standards and food production and medication production in a GMP environment, it is a well-established principle. So water activity is something that refers to the amount of free water that is available for uh, the support of microbiological growth. So it is not the percent of water that is in a formulation, it's the water activity. So again, it's the amount of free water that can support microbial growth. The reason this becomes relevant for all of us in the compounding world is because USP now designates an aqueous or water-containing formula versus an anhydrous formula um, based on its water activity. So a water activity of greater than 0.6 is considered to be aqueous. At a water activity greater than 0.6, microbes can grow, whether it's bacteria, fungi, spores, so on and so forth. So can I test that? Is there a way to test that in the lab? Is there a way to, like, how do I know? Yeah, so, so water activity can be tested. Before we start talking about how to test it, keep in mind that USP has been very explicit that their intent is not for individual pharmacies to have to test the water activity of their formulations. So they do refer you to another table in another chapter within USP that talks about uh, generally accepted water activity and water activity ranges for different types of, of dosage forms. So everything has a water activity, right? Not just medications, but bread, right? I mentioned in, in the food industry, bread has a water activity. It is considered a, a dry good for, for most purposes, but you leave it out at room temperature for an extended period of time and what happens? It'll go green and moldy. That's, That's right. So that, that microbiological growth is... Uh, is occurring within the bread because the water activity is greater than 0.6. So it's got that water content in it. Otherwise, you're dealing with very dry, crusty bread. So if the 
uh, entity, whether it's the pharmacy or, or a testing company, they, they wish to test for water activity. This is not something that you do on the lab scale within the pharmacy. So you'd have to send this out to an analytical lab that has the specific equipment and validated procedures to test specific formulations and dosage forms for their water activity. So I mentioned if it's greater than 0.6, then you're dealing with an aqueous dosage form, and you have a specific maximum beyond use date assigned um, in the absence of other data. If it's less than 0.6, less than or equal to 0.6, it is considered anhydrous, and then you have a different, uh, you have a, a separate maximum beyond use date that's allowed in the table, again, in the absence of other data to, to support an extension of the beyond use date. Um, and then the, there's also some nuance about if it's anhydrous but also a dry product, like a dry powder or a tablet, then you have a, a, a different beyond use date. And in the aqueous realm, if it's preserved or not preserved, and uh, just saying that, well, it has an ingredient that is generally considered a preservative is not simply how they define a formulation as being preserved, all right? So it has to be, uh, th they talk about USP 51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing as another component. But I'll let Matt dive into all of the details for the preservative issue, the individual beyond use dates, and, and all of that. Okay, so a couple other notes on water activity real quick. Um, the other thing, so AJ mentioned uh, that water activity can lead to microbial growth. Um, the, that water activity can also lead to degradation of your active ingredients. So you can have a loss of potency from that water that, that's available. So that's another thing you'll see, a differentiation in the, the beyond use states between aqueous uh, and anhydrous. Uh, for people that are looking for that other reference in USP, the chapter that talks about water activity, and you can see some of the uh, information in there about what bacterial growth is like with water activity and also various dosage forms and what their water activity is considered to be. Uh, so when we talk about the, the new beyond use states, uh, for the longest time, we in the current 795, uh, an oral aqueous preparation could only get 14 days uh, refrigerated. So it was dependent on the route of administration. In the current 795, a water-containing topical preparation gets 30 days. But that system has changed now. In the new 795, uh, an aqueous preparation, whether it is oral or topical, either route of administration, gets a 14-day specifically refrigerated uh, beyond use date if it doesn't have a preservative in the preparation, okay? And that refrigeration of, of that, that preservative-free preparation is really important because that's the only other thing that you have to try to control potential microbial growth. Now, on the other hand, if you have an aqueous preparation, whether it's oral or topical, doesn't matter, um, then that, that compound with a preservative can have up to 35 days either at room temp uh, or under refrigeration, so depending on what's appropriate uh, for your drug. So there, there is some opportunity now to have some of those uh, aqueous suspensions that have always been limited uh, to 14 days refrigerated in the past to have up to 35 days at room temp uh, or refrigerated uh, with a preservative, provided that's appropriate for the drug that you're compounding. So 
Um, other than aqueous preparations, we have the, the anhydrous preparations that have that water activity below 0.6. And USP uh, now divides those in 795 uh, into two forms. One, they say they have non-aqueous dosage forms and solid dosage forms. So non-aqueous dosage forms are things like suppositories, ointments, uh, fixed oils, so like your fixed oil suspensions, uh, or waxes. Those can have up to a 90-day beyond use date. Um, so that is a reduction. In the current 795, those would all be just anhydrous preparations and have up to 180 days. But now, suppositories, ointments, fixed oils, uh, all are going to have a max of 90 days. The other category of, of a, a, an anhydrous dosage form is a solid dosage form. So things like capsules, tablets, uh, powders are all going to have up to 180-day uh, beyond use date uh, as the default. Okay, so these are all the BUDs that you can have without specific additional testing of the formulation. Uh, however, if you want to extend a beyond use date, beyond what we just talked about, you can do that in the new 795. Uh, comes with a couple of, of different ways to do that. Um, you can extend those beyond use dates up to as much as 180 days. It doesn't allow you to extend it past that, but you can have up to 180 days. Uh, one way you can do that, in USP, they have a number of compounded preparation monographs that you can use provided that you follow that formula explicitly and that your formulation meets all the specifications in that compounded preparation monograph, then you can use the beyond use date that exists in that compounded preparation monograph, okay? So there are some of those, um, certainly not going to be enough to take care of everything, but those are some options for patient care. The other way that you can have an extended beyond use date uh, is with a stability study. Uh, and that stability study uh, has to use a thing called a stability indicating assay for the active ingredients for a particular formula and for the type of container that the preparation is dispensed in. So let's break that down just a little bit. Your stability indicating assay is a test that works to make sure that when they test for the drug that there's no overlap from any of the uh, other ingredients in the formula or also for any of the breakdown products uh, of the active ingredient to make sure that when they get the reading, it's on, they're only reading the drug. So you're looking for something that has a stability indicating assay uh, for a particular preparation and it's specific for the type of container that the preparation is dispensed in. Now, beyond that, if it's an, an aqueous preparation, um, it's going to have to have a preservative to have that extended beyond use date. And not only does it need a preservative, but it needs to be proven that the preservative does its job uh, over the, the life of the beyond use date for that compound. And that's done through testing in USP Chapter 51 that addresses antimicrobial effectiveness. Now, you, you can do this testing. You can have this done. You can send out a formulation to a lab and have them do antimicrobial effectiveness testing for your preparation, but USP also says that you can have results provided by an FDA-registered uh, facility uh, or uh, published in peer-reviewed literature sources. Um, again, the, the data that you're using has to be specific to the particular formula, the exact formula, 
and the exact container that that formulation uh, was done in. And there's a thing called bracketing that is permitted for both these stability studies uh, and for the antimicrobial effectiveness testing. So you might be thinking, my gosh, like, you know, we're going to do all this testing, you know, we're going to have an, an awful lot of expense if we get into this. And I, I think this is the really uh, exciting thing about what PCCA has been working on to provide for its members uh, is a group of formulas that uh, go by Formula Plus. And so the, the Formula Plus formulas, I think we're heading around 150, uh, 160 uh, of these formulas have all been tested with this stability indicating assay that, that the new 795 talks about. Uh, and if they're an aqueous preparation, they've been tested for USP51 antimicrobial effectiveness testing, or if they haven't, they will be uh, by the time we get to uh, December, as well as some of these formulas are bracketed formulas. So a bracketed formula is testing a specific formulation at a lower strength, as well as testing that formulation at a higher strength. And you say, well, why would you do that? And you do that because that data from the testing of the lower strength and the higher strength covers all the strengths of that formula in between the high and the low. So if you've got something that you produce a number of different strengths of for patients, um, that data can support all of those all of those strengths in between the high and the low uh, of what was tested. Uh, so I'm, I'm really excited for people to be able to use these formulas, use this data uh, to support uh, taking care of their patients. You know, I'll add in uh, one thing briefly to, to Matt's really thorough discussion there, which is when we're just looking at the default dates within the chapter, you can go up to those dates. So for example, you, you can't ignore scientific data just saying that I didn't want to look at it or, well, the, the chapter allowed me to go beyond that. So just from a simplistic approach to say that we're going to put aspirin in preserved water and give it 35 days would be inappropriate because the amount of data is, is vast about the rapid degradation of aspirin in an aqueous environment. So those are maximum beyond use states in the absence of data, but if there is information about the stability that warrants a shorter beyond use state for your formulation, of course, you need to go with that information. We're scientists, we're pharmacists, we need to make sure that we're applying the, the science to all of our activities. So with the beyond use states, because this is really interesting about beyond um, the bracketed studies, I've had a few people who say, well, what if I go like a higher strength or what if I go with a lower strength? Can't I just extrapolate the bracketed study information? So the technicality for the bracketing is that the brackets are your bookends. So things that are at or between those bracketed concentrations can be utilized. If you're going outside of that bracket, then the data does not apply. And if you want to use the data, you need to follow the formulation process exactly. Process is very important. So uh, when, you know, Matt talked about the Formula Plus database, and when we're conducting those studies and publishing those formulas, we're completely transparent about everything that we did to yield that result, including 
the, the testing results themselves. So we talk about the specific equipment that was used, the devices that were used. Did we use a glass mortar and pestle or a Wedgwood mortar and pestle? Did we use an electric, electronic mortar and pestle, an EMP, on a setting of one or three? How long did we mix it for? What, what were the settings on the ointment mill? We give you all of those details because they're all very important uh, related to the stability and the consistency of your finished compounded formulation. So um, what, what kind of a vial or dispensing device did we then package this in, store it in, and study it in? All of that information is, is critical and must be duplicated if you want to duplicate and apply the results of the study. See, it's a bit of a leading question because I know in the past it was a little bit of a common thread that if you have a formula that has been studied and has this robust data, you, and if you remove ingredients, so APIs, or if you go with a lower strength, the common misthought was, well, it's okay, you can extrapolate down, but you can't extrapolate up. You can't add ingredients, you can't add, add, add. But this is very clear because stability indicating assays looks at all of the ingredients and all of the byproducts and as well as the antimicrobial system. So if you start removing ingredients, you, you're, you're effectively throwing the entire testing process out. So you still have to stick with the exact formulation. You can't make deletions or substitutions or, or additions and certainly outside of those strengths. And that's why I was going with this leading question because both of your dis discussion points were extremely clear. And that's, that's effectively where we're going. Because I know I get that question a lot through our consulting uh, department. And I just wanted to have your, your very clear answers on that. Because that's, that's effectively what, where we're going, is the formula is the formula, can't go outside. That's the very simple response. I think there's a place to take that one layer farther as well, uh, Seb. Because not only do you have to follow the formula explicitly, but you have to use the exact chemicals that were used in the, the formula. So to say that you have to use PCCA chemicals to use the PCCA data, because that's where the data came from, okay? And I, I know as soon as I say this, that there are gonna be people that say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that I've got a chemical that's labeled USP, and there's somehow you're trying to tell me that it's different from your chemical that's also labeled USP. I mean, these chemicals meet the same standards, right? And I, I totally understand, you know, people having that perspective, but I would tell you that even USP themselves uh, says that chemicals that meet the USP monograph uh, are not uh, all guaranteed to be exactly the same. Um, so there's a part of USP uh, at the front called the general notices. And so USP general notice 4.1 says, because monographs may not provide standards for all relevant characteristics, some official substances may conform to the USP or NF standard, but differ with regard to non-standardized properties that are relevant to their use in specific preparations. Uh, and so I think, you know, if, if people sit back and think about this, they'll, they'll notice, uh, let's just talk about progesterone uh, and talk about particle size of progesterone. Progesterone comes uh, as progesterone USP, um, but it comes in various particle sizes. Particle size is not a part of the USP monograph uh, for progesterone, but this is still a specification uh, on the C of A. This is still a property that needs to be considered and how it's going to perform uh, 
uh, in the compound. And so uh, while, you know, you might say, well, you know, if you think about it, I think you, you come to realize that there are some differences uh, in these chemicals, uh, even if they say they meet uh, a USP or NF monograph. So if you're going to use that formula plus data, uh, it is going to have to be with, with PCCA chemicals because that's what was tested and that's where the data was generated. I think one very important thing to, to emphasize, and I know Matt talked about it in the beginning, is please, please do not take the content of any individual um, webinar or podcast or other educational event related to 795 as a replacement for your own reading of the chapter. Even if you read the previous version of the chapter, this is a rewrite. The things that we have discussed here are not the only things that are updated from the previous version. It's a fully new chapter. And there's a lot of detail that needs your attention. So as Matt mentioned, the, the shalls, the musts, the shoulds, there's a lot of discussions to be had with your regulatory jurisdiction. You know, is your state board, the uh, various accreditation bodies that, that you may have interest with, what are their expectations or um, requirements and what will they be enforcing? What are your expectations for best practices within your setting, performing your own risk assessments? So please utilize this as a, as a point of reference, as a component of the conversation, but the conversation should and must continue within each pharmacy with your staff that are engaged in, in um, the operations, the actual compounding, the oversights, the safety of the compounding process. So this is really and truly the beginning of the conversation with respect to understanding the chapter and how much more information we're we going to be discussing over the next five months, year, couple of years until we see another rewrite. Again, we're going to reemphasize, read the chapter, reread the chapter, ask intelligent questions, and don't take anyone else's word necessarily because you're taking it out of context or one piece, especially from people who have a fear-based perspective like, oh my God, did you hear about this? go back and read the chapter yourself. As Matt said, it's free, available on USP uh, website. Download it, read it, live it, love it, learn it. If you're really stuck, you could probably find it as a link, right, Mike? Yeah, and, and that's back to you, our main website, www.pccarx.com. And then when you navigate to the USP portion of our top toolbar, you'll be able to access information on 795, on 97, as well as 800. So that will be your... I guess you can say center of information for all things pertaining to the new regulatory chapters and the changes being made and some, I guess you could say even recommendations for where we can kind of put you in the right direction uh, when it comes to workflow, when it comes to lab design, um, as well as modular setup if that is something that you're interested in as well. So there's a really robust FAQ section of the website um, that does help address a lot of the uh, tough questions when it comes to USP 800 and the handling of hazardous products. Matt, you, uh, you're going to be up next on that podcast, and we're, we've obviously split things up in three different ways. Um, given the fact that this is probably the hottest topic uh, and always the number one question that we get within the field, over our customer service department, within our clinical services team, and at trade shows. So it's, it's really dominated conversation um, relating to all forms of compounding, whether it's sterile or non-sterile and hazardous. 
so it's really been interesting to see the amount of information or influx of questions that we've received. And I think just this podcast is a, a part of it. Reading the, uh, the chapters still remains to be the most important thing that you can do. Uh, we hope that we help educate and provide you additional knowledge through the podcast, through the opportunities of doing live webinars. Um, we are firmly aware that there are multiple areas that you can find certain live webinars and be educated on the whole topic, but there's still much to be said about just reading the documents. And I know that's probably one of the first things that I always hear you three say is read the document, read the document, read the document. So um, honestly, guys, I really appreciate the fact that you guys did this. I take a drink of water because I spoke so much today. It was rough. It's always an <laughs> honor being invited to participate in, in the podcast with the, with the two of you. So thanks. Yeah, thanks again, Matt. I know I mentioned that you'll be up, at, up soon with a USP 800 podcast dedicated to that topic as a whole. So thanks again for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Sab, any last words? Um, last thoughts. This is an exciting time in pharmacy, especially for compounders. We're, we're truly uh, elevating our game. We're seeing this change. We're really truly bringing science behind it. Um, with keeping in touch with what we've been doing clinically for years, and this is going to actually build the perspective from the rest of the healthcare profession, that we're not doing things in a lax attitude. We're actually, we're actually doing it correctly. We can duplicate, replicate, and consistently provide a quality product in a safe manner for our patients. And clinically, we have the proper outcomes. And so this is, this is really and truly a, a brilliant time to be in compounding. Thank you, gentlemen. On that note, we're going we're gonna to end things to all of our listeners, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode. As a quick reminder, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss our next release every two weeks on Thursdays. Uh, please, uh, and also a reminder to follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and also visit our main public site at www.pccarx.com. This is Mike Delisio. Until next time, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.